Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 4 of Dr. Music. I am Matthew Marullo. Thank you so much for joining me. Today we are going to talk about a symphony by one of the most famous composers of the early Romantic period. Now, when I talk about the early Romantic period, I'm referring to the early 19th century. Beethoven is the one who pioneered kind of single-handedly the Romantic period with his Symphony No. 3, the Eroica Symphony, or the Heroic Symphony. But right after him was Franz Schubert of Austria. Unfortunately, Schubert died very young. He lived from 1797 to 1828. To the age of only 31, he died only one year after Beethoven passed away. Beethoven lived from 1770 to 1827. Schubert died young for a couple of reasons. First of all, he was a workaholic. He was constantly writing music, and he wrote an enormous amount of music in his short lifetime. But I would say the main reason he passed away early was because he got syphilis, and then on top of that, typhus. When Schubert was a young boy, he actually had a pretty famous teacher, a name that you might know for a very specific reason. When Schubert was only 11 years old, he was accepted as a choir boy in the Vienna Imperial Court Chapel, and his teacher was none other than Antonio Salieri. Now, if you know Salieri's name, it's for one of two reasons— Either you're a musicologist and you know Salieri's name, or you saw the play or saw the movie Amadeus. In Peter Schaeffer's play Amadeus, the plot centers around Antonio Salieri being a very famous court composer in Austria, in Vienna. But he's jealous of Mozart because he knows that Mozart is a much better composer than he is. Indeed, Mozart is a genius, and Salieri is mediocre. So Salieri plots to kill Mozart by working him to death, commissioning a piece called a Requiem, a Mass for the Dead, and Mozart is in such poor health that he works himself to death. Well, Mozart might have worked himself to death, and he was in poor health, but it had nothing to do with Salieri commissioning the Requiem. The Requiem was not commissioned by Salieri, and we have no evidence whatsoever that Antonio Salieri was so jealous of Mozart. They knew each other, but we don't know that Salieri hated Mozart, that's for sure. In real life, Salieri was quite a good composer in his own right and pretty well known during his day. And he was Franz Schubert's teacher for a while at the court chapel. And from a very young age, Schubert proved to be a very prolific composer, a very talented composer. And he just kept composing and composing and composing. How much did he compose? Well, about 650 songs, nine symphonies, Yeah, he was one of those composers who had the Ninth Symphony curse. He died after his Ninth Symphony. Over a dozen operas, five masses, and a whole bunch of chamber music is just, his output was just incredible for living to be only 31 years. Of course, Mozart didn't live that much longer. He only lived to be 35 years old. So I guess there's a double curse. First of all, you don't want to write only nine symphonies because then you'll die after the ninth. And also, you don't want to be a child prodigy like Mozart and Schubert because you won't even live to be 40. Well, the piece that I want to talk about today is Schubert's most famous symphony. There's really only three symphonies that are in the repertoire today. Schubert's fifth, well, not so much his fifth, but definitely his eighth and his ninth symphony. And his eighth is definitely his most famous because it is the unfinished symphony. And to this day, 
we do not know exactly why he only wrote two movements and began a third movement. We're not exactly sure what his intentions was. Did, did he want to finish the symphony? Did he finish the symphony? We're not exactly sure. All we have are two movements. What we do know is that Schubert was offered an honorary diploma by the Graz Musical Society, so Schubert decided, by way of thanks, to dedicate his new symphony to the Musical Society, so he sent two movements to his friend, Anselm Huttenbrenner, in 1823, and his friend never returned those two movements and we don't know of any other movement. We just know that Schubert sent those two movements over to him. Now, could it be that Schubert just ran out of ideas? Uh, probably not. He was a prolific composer. Maybe there was something about the symphony itself that bothered him. He just couldn't finish it for some reason, so he just moved on. Or did he actually compose a movement that's never been found? We just don't know. But at least we have these two full movements, and in particular... The first movement is extremely famous, and I wanted to talk about the first minute or so because just in the beginning of this symphony, you really see his genius shine through. Now, remember I said that Schubert lived during the early Romantic period. What is it about his music, like Beethoven's, that makes it romantic? Well, we can spend quite a lot of time talking about what makes romantic music romantic, and it doesn't always have to be about love. It could be lyrical. It could sound like a love poem, but what's really important about Schubert's music and Beethoven's music is that they evoke what's called pathos. Now, the word pathos can mean a sense of sadness or pity, but in the arts, the word pathos means making the reader or the listener feel the emotions of either the writer or the composer. So what happens in the Romantic period is a very personal connection with the emotions or the feelings of the artist, more personal than that of the classical period. That's not to say that the music of the classical period, like Mozart and Haydn, is not emotional. Of course it's, a, it's emotional. But the tools that the romantic composer uses, the, the way he uses and manipulates rhythm and harmony and melody, are such that if the composer is feeling anguish or agony, he or she really wants the audience to feel that. And that, that has to be evoked somehow in the presentation of the music and the musical gestures to a much more dramatic degree than you ever get in the classical period. It's almost as if the composers of the 19th century are presenting their audience with a looking glass deep into their hearts and into their emotions, completely uninhibited and unabashed. This is the way life is, this is how I'm really feeling. I'm sorry if it makes you feel uncomfortable, but that's just the way it is. This kind of attitude arises from the age of reason and the Enlightenment, where the focus was not as much objective as it was inward, subjective. The individual became very important, just like with the rise of nationalism, the nation became very important. And in the area of music, this can be conveyed in a number of ways, one of the ways is harmonically. For instance, Schubert will indulge in what's called harmonic purple patches. What's a purple patch? It's an unexpected modulation to a key that's very foreign to the home key. For example, if you look in the classic period, sometimes you could just guess where they're going to change the key because it's the conventional thing to do. 
But romantic composers like Beethoven, Schubert, and, and afterwards, they will set up new key centers that are quite surprising and unexpected and unconventional compared to, say, the music of the 18th century. The first thing that I'd like to do is play the very opening of Schubert's Symphony No. 8, a very ominous melody played in the low strings by the cellos and the basses. And this theme indicates something about what Schubert is going to do later harmonically. So let me play it for you first. So if we dissect that opening theme a little bit, the first part is definitely in the home key. The symphony is in B minor. But then right after that, Schubert kind of flirts with what's called the submediant. Now, the submediant in a key is the chord that occurs on the sixth scale degree. And in this case, in the key of B minor, the sixth scale degree, the sixth note in the scale, is G. So he's kind of flirting with G major when he does this. Now, if I harmonize that entire theme, and I'm not sure Schubert would approve of that, but if I did, it might illuminate a little bit better how that would sound, starting in B minor, but then it kind of hints at G major. Now, I changed the ending of that opening theme, and again, Schubert would be very irritated with me, but I did it just to show how the G major tonality is being implied at least towards the end of that melody, but then he goes promptly right back into the home key of B minor. So that was the introductory theme. Let's listen now to what happens, because first the strings are going to set up this chord regression, and then the oboes and the clarinets are going to come in with the main first theme. What you just heard is the main theme being played twice in a row. At the end of each time was a cadence, or an articulation called a half cadence. A half cadence for English would be kind of like maybe a question mark or a semicolon. A half cadence is usually on the harmony that's called the dominant, or the five chord. And the dominant is associated with tension. And if you heard any of my prior podcasts, you already know that. But when you end a phrase on the dominant, it is definitely not over because, like I said, the analogous punctuation would be a question mark or a semicolon. What I really wanted to talk about first, though, is the rhythmic component. What does Schubert do with rhythm? He plays a little rhythmic trick. This piece is notated in a meter called triple time, 
three, four time, which means there are three beats per measure. And the way you count that is one, two, three, one, two, three. But let me play you the opening string accompaniment before the main melody comes in. Now I'm going to do that again, but I'm going to count to three so you can hear the triple time. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. But here's the thing. Schubert does not present that in 3-4 time. Even though the meter in the piece is 3-4 time, he actually articulates it as if it's in a duple time. A duple time is a meter that has groups of 2, not 3. In particular, it indicates the time of 6-8. Now, 6-8 is what's called a compound duple meter. That means there are only 2 beats per measure, each of them divided into three, like this. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to play exactly what I did before, but instead of counting to three, I'm going to count to two. One, two, one, two. One, two, one, two. This is a rhythmic device that's been used for hundreds and hundreds of years, well before Schubert. It's called hemiola. Hemiola is a rhythmic device where the composer is giving the impression of a duple meter piece, in other words, where the beat is divided into two, but it's not. It's actually a triple meter piece where the beat is divided into three, or vice versa. Now I'm gonna play the original recording again, and when I do, try to hear the units of two beats. In other words, you can count to yourself. One, two, one, two. Here it goes. Towards the expert, if you were starting to have a little trouble counting to two, that's because Schubert is trying to blur your sense of rhythm once again. And the reason he's doing that is because when the second theme comes in, the second theme is definitely going to be in the meter of the entire piece, which is three. Remember, he sets up the meter as three, but he tricks you in the beginning into thinking it's in groups of two. When the second theme comes in, it truly is in three. So it sounds refreshing. It sounds new. But in terms of the meter, it's not new. Now, before that second theme comes in, Schubert has an authentic cadence. That's a cadence in the home key, or the one chord instead of the five chord, the key of B minor. Let's listen to that. I'm going to play the ending of that one more time, but I'm going to count to two like I did before to show you some more hemiola. Here it goes. Mm -hmm. 
Now you notice that I was counting to two, even though the meter of the piece, or the time signature, was 3-4. It's in three, but I was counting to two. But this is different than last time. Last time when I was counting to two, it was called a compound duple meter, meaning that each beat is divided into three, like this. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six where the first beat is happening obviously on one, and the second beat is happening on four. In this case, there's a duple meter, but it's called a simple duple meter, which would be two-four time, like this. One and two, and one and two, and... So in this first part of the piece, where Schubert is presenting his first main theme after the introductory theme, he is in indulging in a lot of rhythmic tricks, and it's to set up the second theme, which is coming up, which is truly in 3-4 time. It's truly in a triple meter, even though, like I said, the entire piece is in 3. Well, let's continue with the recording and listen to the second main theme, which is in a major key, not a minor key. 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, one, two, three. That second lyrical melody that you just heard is in the key of G major. Does that ring a bell? Remember in the introductory melody that we went over, I said that Schubert was kind of flirting with the key of G major in that short melody with the cellos and the basses? Well, here it is, coming out in the second melody. And this can be thought of as a purple patch key, because in the classical period, if you were writing a piece in the minor mode, you wouldn't normally modulate to what's called the submedian, in other words, six, Roman numeral six, and that's what Schubert does here. So I'm not saying that it never happened, but it's not the usual thing to do. So the fact that Schubert goes from B minor to G major, and again, G major is called the submedian, that's really more of a romantic period procedure. It's an unexpected key. Not outlandish, just unexpected. So in that introductory passage, Schubert was foreshadowing the key that he was going to be going to in the second theme. And here's the other question, and to me this is even more impressive. How is the second theme related to the first? Are they completely different melodies? Well, they definitely sound different, right? 
It's not like he's using the same exact notes. But there is a relationship there, regardless of whether Schubert was actively thinking about it when he wrote the music or it just happened naturally. And that happens often when composers are writing multiple themes. They're not consciously thinking that, oh, this theme is derived from the first one. But a lot of times it just comes out that way. It just comes out naturally like that. So let me first remind you the contour of the first main theme in B minor. So intervallically, what happened there twice? First, it leaps down a perfect fifth and then ascends by step three notes going up by step. So again, it goes down a fifth, then it goes up by step. In other words, like a scale, three notes. Now let me play you the second lyrical theme in G major. Now what happened there? Well, it leaped actually twice. It went down a perfect fourth, and we first heard a perfect fourth in that introductory melody with the cellos and the basses. Then it went right back up a perfect fourth, and then it did exactly what the first theme did. It ascended by step three notes. Now, that is no accident that in both themes, one of the minor, one of the major, we begin with a leap. Well, in the second theme, there are two leaps, followed by a scale going up three notes. Now, remember, it's not necessarily the case that Schubert sat down and said, hmm, I'm going to make the contour of my second theme similar to that of my first theme, but it's not going to be that obvious, but it'll be there. That's not the way composers usually work. They're just writing themes, and somehow a correlation arises between their themes, even if they're not actively thinking about it. It's that magical invention, that inspiration, that somehow ties the threads of a piece of art together. I'm always reminded of a famous quote by Igor Stravinsky when he was talking about how he wrote his famous third ballet, The Rite of Spring. He basically said, there's no rhyme or reason to The Rite of Spring. I am the vessel through which The Rite of Spring passed. In other words, he was saying there's no technique. He just felt the music going through him, and he wrote down what he was hearing. Well, it turns out there is a rigorous technique behind the theory of the rite of spring. It has to do with something called octatonic scales and tetrachords. Tetrachords, even though the word chord is in there, they're not chords. They're four-note scales that span a perfect fourth, and they derive from the Middle Ages. But I'm not going to get into that right now. The point is that even if a composer doesn't think there is a theoretical technique behind his invention or her invention. Sometimes there is. Well, that was just the first several measures of Schubert's Eighth Symphony. And I should say that there are th some theorists that believe it should be dated as his Seventh Symphony, but we know it as his Eighth Unfinished Symphony. Imagine how long this podcast would be if I went over the entire first movement. Oh boy. Well, we don't have the time for that, but at least I whetted your appetite, I hope. That recording, by the way, was Herbert von Karajan conducting the Berliner Philharmonic. Now, before we go, let me play a recording of Valentina Lisitsa playing Liszt's arrangement of Schubert's most famous song, Ave Maria. And I'm sure you know this.
hope you enjoyed that, and I hope to see you next time, because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better.